Hi everyone, I'm John Offred, I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. Today we're going to talk about neurodiversity. I'm delighted to be joined by Sienna Castellon, an internationally recognised and multi-award winning autism advocate and anti-bullying campaigner. Sienna is 18 and from London. She classes herself as a maths and physics nerd and claims her dog is the cutest dog in the world. Sienna is also neurodiverse. She is autistic, dyslexic, dyspraxic and has ADHD. Sienna, how are you? Welcome to the show. Um, I'm fine. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. So Sienna, just tell us, how, how are you finding lockdown right now? Um, so I've taken lockdown um, pretty seriously. I have a pre-existing heart condition, which means I really don't want to get sick with the virus. So I've, I'm on my 138th day of lockdown. Um, at the beginning, it was difficult. Um, I'm autistic and I really value my routine. And I'd spent a lot of time kind of perfecting the routine that I had going to school and studying. And I'd found um, library spaces where I could work at. And I was really enjoying um, a sense of uniformity in the way I was spending my time. And then when lockdown started, it was a lot of disruption. You know, I was no longer um, going to school in person. I was doing it online. I now had to, um, I wasn't able to use my like a library, do the same office space, um, and it was a bit difficult to adjust to. So Sienna, just tell us a bit about how would you describe your neurodiversity? I have lots of neurodiversity, I would say. I'm neurodiverse in many different ways. I'm autistic, I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, I have ADHD. I also have synesthesia. Um, so I've got a lot going on, but I'm very proud of it. Um, and I feel like it what make, it makes me who I am. With my autism, I have, you know, some social troubles um, that I work through and I find them quite challenging at times. Um, I struggle to read body language and I find um, social environments very draining. Um, I have a sensory processing disorder as well, so I can get overwhelmed by um, loud sounds and bright lights. But there are so many positives to being autistic as well. I'm incredibly passionate about math. Um, my A-levels were math, further math and physics. So it's I spent a lot of my time doing math. And I feel like part of that passion, not all of it, stems from being autistic and that being my you know, special interest of sorts. And I don't know who I would be without my autism and without that passion for, for, for math and for other things. Um, I have dyspraxia, um, which is a motor coordination disorder. So that makes you clumsy and it can also make you disorganized. Um, And so I was diagnosed with that when I was eight and it was it was really great to get diagnosed with. Um, A lot of people have this misconception that when you're diagnosed with a learning difference, um, it's something that's upsetting because you realize, oh, you know, my life is going to be different because of this. But that wasn't something I experienced because I felt like I've always had dyspraxia, I've always had my, my neurodiversities, I was born with them, um, and I've always had those symptoms. And so getting diagnosed with it is just putting a name to what you have. It's not revealing something new. Um, and so I was really happy when I was diagnosed with dyspraxia because it gave me a way to explain to other people why I was so clumsy because I was commonly, I was often told, you know, oh, you're just not trying at sport. Oh, you're not trying with your organization. You're just being lazy when I was putting in a lot of effort, and so being able to explain that was great. I've got dyslexia, which most people know about. Um, With me, I can read well, um, but I struggle with spelling. And it took me a while to get diagnosed because teachers would say, well, she can read, so she can't be dyslexic. But um, I have what is called stealth dyslexia. It's not um, as blatantly obvious as other people's. Um, It's more mild, but it definitely... Um, impacts my spelling and it would give me a lot of anxiety in school to be turning in essays and knowing that it's just riddled with spelling mistakes but you don't know where they are and you can't find them to correct them and then um, I have ADHD ADHD and how I got diagnosed 
is a bit of a, I find it a bit of a funny story. Um, a bit of background on me. I've been in the neurodiversity um, industry for a while now. I started my first website, QL Mentoring, when I was 13. And I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 15. And at the time before I was diagnosed, I felt like I knew quite a lot about neurodiversity. I'd spent a lot of time writing articles about different learning differences. And I really dedicated a lot of my time um, to the community. And so I felt like somewhat of an expert. I always knew that um, I had more to learn because, um, you know, the second you decide that you know everything there is to know, that's the second you, you start failing in what you're doing. I, I always knew that I had to push myself, but I felt like I knew quite a lot. And so then discovering, oh, I've got ADHD and I, I never caught this. The whole time I've just been, I've just been thinking it was my autism when it was actually ADHD. It was a bit of a surprise to me, um, but I was happy to be diagnosed with it because it explained why I was struggling to concentrate. At the time I thought it was autism. It was, you know, I can focus on my math, but then when it comes to other stuff, I struggle to focus on it because it's not my special interest. Um, but then when I realized how difficult it was to focus, um, it was quite an awakening when I was studying for my GCSEs and it was just impossible to do. I got diagnosed with ADHD. I understand, Sienna, that you are the founder of the Neurodiversity Celebration Week. I, can, I wonder if you can tell us what is that? To explain it um, in the best way, I'll just kind of talk about why I started it. Um, so I had a website before called QR Mentoring that I started when I was 13. And on it, I just posted some tips and tricks about how to get through school with learning differences and some of the advice that I had to share just from going through the school experience. And I had a lot of people who were contacting me and saying, you know, I've been applying your tips to my life, but I'm not able to get very far because the people who I need to be supportive are the teachers and they're not listening to me, they're invalidating when I'm, talk when I'm talking about my learning difference, they're invalidating it. And they're telling me that I'm lazy and they're telling me, oh, you know, you just have to get over it. And I can't succeed at school, no matter how many tips and tricks of yours I apply, if my teachers have that mentality. And so I started thinking, you know, how can I change this? How can I educate teachers? Um, and then also there were a lot of people who were being bullied by students um, for being neurodiverse. And I thought, you know, how can I educate peers as well. So I came up with my neurodiversity celebration week and it has three aims to teach teachers more about neurodiversity so that they can recognize it in their pupils and they can support pupils who have those neurodiversities um, to educate peers and students at school um, who may be neurotypical but a lot of the time I, I mean I was bullied by kids for being autistic for instance and I at the time, I wasn't diagnosed, but I feel like if I told them and if I communicated to them, you know, you are bullying me because of a disability I have, um, which is actually a hate crime. If it had been explained in that way and if they'd known more about autism, I feel like they wouldn't have bullied me um, the way they did. And so teaching um, peers about it. And then also the last aim is to empower neurodiverse individuals. The way Neurodiversity Celebration Week works is I have a website um, with different assembly plans that schools can do, um, posters, different activities. Um, I'll give you an example of an activity. Um, my favorite one is you have the teacher um, give the class an assignment, which is to cut out different shapes um, and, and the team that does it the quickest wins. And each team, bar one, has a disadvantage. So one of them, you know, you have a hand tied behind your back, the other, you're blindfolded. And what ends up happening is the team that doesn't have an advantage wins and they do, they cut out the shapes the fastest. And they celebrate their win and they're given a reward and the other students turn and say, you know, that's really unfair because I use this really great ingenuity. We came up with this really great tactic that was really creative to, you know, cut shapes, blindfold them with one hand and we use teamwork and we should get rewarded for that because what we did was actually a lot harder than what they did. Of course they were going to win, they didn't have a disadvantage. And then the teacher turns to them and says, well, that's what it feels like to be neurodiverse. That's what it feels like to, you know, wake up early every day and spend hours studying your vocabulary test 
and then to be waiting outside to go into a room to take your test and you have a student come and say oh you know I didn't I didn't study it let me just quickly take a look and that student memorizes the vocab just before they go in and then when you get your results you get a really low score because you're dyslexic and you know it's difficult to get high scores on spelling tests when you struggle with spelling and then the student who didn't put any effort in gets a higher score than you do. That's what it feels to spend a lot of time trying to overcome a disadvantage that you may have, um, especially when you're in the school system. You know, it's when they're teaching you on things that may be, you know, na that naturally disadvantage you when they focus a lot on spelling and organisation, when you're dyslexic, when you're dyspraxic. That's what it feels to put a lot of energy into something and then not have it rewarded. Um, and so it helps neurotypical students kind of understand the neurodiverse perspective. I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about the, your book, The Spectrum Girls Survival Guide, How to Grow Up Awesome and Autistic, um, which is obviously a, a, a brilliant guide for neurodiverse girls navigating a, a neurotypical world. How did that book come about, Sienna? People often say that fewer women have autism than men. And people see it as, oh yeah, women are just less likely to be autistic. And if you look at the stats, um, you can maybe draw that conclusion, but I disagree with that. I believe that women are less likely to get diagnosed because women, um, you know, show their autism in a different way. Um, women are way more likely to mimic and to, you know, I know growing up, I would watch television shows and I would look at interactions different characters would have and I would copy their body language and I would copy things they would say. And so if you're just looking at me without knowing any backstory, you might say, oh, you know, that person had a had a good conversation. They can't be autistic because, you know, they they didn't seem to have any social communication difficulties. Um, and so you can draw that conclusion, but then you don't know the behind the scenes. You don't know the hours I spent prepping to have those conversations, the scripts I memorized, how I'm just pretending to have a completely different personality than the one I have, because I know that I'm quirky and I'm different and I don't want to be bullied for that. And so because of women masking and just showing differently, you're less likely to get diagnosed and you're less likely to get support for it because a lot of the support is for the male stereotype of autism. And so I decided to write a book for females on the spectrum. Um, it's the first book written for autistic girls by an autistic girl, which I think is, is shocking. Um, you know, a lot of the books, if there are not many books out there for females who are autistic, but of a few that do exist, a lot of them are written by, by um, neurotypical men, which I, it's difficult to understand how they can have proper insight on what it's like to be a teen with autism. Um, and so with my book, I tried to write the survival guide that I wish had been available to me when I was growing up. So I tried to include all the tips and tricks that I learned along the way. I share kind of stories in my experience and how you can overcome the challenges that come with your autism and focus on your benefits and your strong points. The whole point of the book is to be an empowering guide. So um, the title is The Spectrum Girls Survival Guide, How to Grow Up Awesome and Autistic. And I wanted to put awesome and autistic because at first it may seem very challenging to be autistic and very difficult, but once you get past all of the sensory processing, once you get past any anxiety you have, um, it can actually be amazing to be autistic. And so I wanted to include that in the title. I just wondered what your view was on media representation of autism and obviously you, you know you've got the stereotypical rain man view of autism and yeah I mean I, I feel like it's a particularly harmful representation um when I was I was diagnosed with autism when I was 12 um but I'd always had social communication issues I've been bullied relentlessly at school my teachers would tell me, you know, you're weird. And they would say to my parents, she's different. She's weird. She doesn't interact with the kids in the way that everyone else does. And, um, and we never knew what it was. And my mom never thought that it could be autism because the exposure that she had to autism was rain pad and um, the Big Bang Theory. And so it means that 
when I tell people, oh, I'm autistic, I commonly hear, you know, oh, well, you don't look autistic. And it's like, what does autism look like? For me, autism looks like anybody because it's an invisible difference. Um, but for some people, they're looking for someone like Rain Man or the Big Bang. And it means that, um, the character from the Big Bang, and it means that um, a lot of the time, teachers, I've been told by teachers, you know, girls can't be autistic. Um, I've been told, you know, one teacher said to me, everybody's a little autistic, and so you shouldn't really be getting any accommodations. And, um, you know, it would be one thing if people had exposure to autism and people knew what autism was and people really understood the autism experience. And then you had all these harmful media depictions, then at least I feel like they're not doing as much harm because people aren't basing their whole idea of what autism is off those characters. But there's a lot of just natural, like people just not knowing what it is and having, um, you know, wrong ideas of, of autism. And then that's just perpetuated by the media right now. So what, I mean, obviously you, you already touched on this, but what, why do you think autism is so misunderstood then? I heard a quote a few years ago and at first I thought it was um, a bit silly, but then when I started thinking about it, it really did resonate. And it's, um, if you've met one autistic person, that means you've met one autistic person. Um, you know, because the thing is with dyslexia, if you line up a hundred people with dyslexia and you say, share your experience of being dyslexic, they're all going to say, oh, you know, I have a few reading issues and I have a few spelling issues. Everyone's going to have pretty much the same problems. Um, it's the same with ADHD, same with dyspraxia. But if you line up a hundred autistic people and you say, you know, what's your experience of being autistic? I would say, you know, um, I have sensory processing disorders that take up my whole life. You know, I really struggle with bright lights and bright sounds, and I'm very sensitive to bright sounds, bright lights and loud sounds. Um, I'm very sensitive to clothing and my environment. And then my sister, who's autistic, who would be standing next to me, would say, well, my thing is I can't feel a lot of what goes on around me. I need my clothes to be really tight, otherwise um, I don't feel like they're on. And um, I need sounds to be louder because I have the opposite sensory processing disorder. And if you would go down the line, everyone would tell you a different story, a different way that autism impacts them because it's a spectrum and everyone presents differently. And so a lot of misconceptions come from, you know, someone seeing one person with autism and thinking that like dyslexia, you know, that one person's experience it's the same as everyone else who's autistic. You hear people saying that autistic people are, are very rigid in their thinking and often see things in black and white, or often there's a misconception where people say that autistic people don't feel empathy. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about that. So for me, I'm, I'm very into my routine. Um, I don't like surprises. I don't like changes in my routine in part because I need time to prepare. I have a sensory processing disorder. And so if you tell me, hey, you're gonna have to go on the tube to go to an event, that morning I will think about how I will have to go on the tube and I will prepare myself and I'll be like, okay, so they're gonna be loud sounds and you know, you have to get in the right mindset so that I don't have a panic attack when I'm in that environment, which is very loud and crowded and busy. Um, and so I prepare myself for it, I then go through with it, and there's a kind of ritual that goes, that's put in place of just calming yourself down and making sure that you've got your music and you've got all your coping mechanisms that you need. And so I really, I really need to be told when I'm going to, you know, have to go somewhere or when there's going to be something in my calendar. If you were to say to me, if you were to suddenly change my routine, I would get very distressed if you were to come to me one day and be like, okay. In an hour, you're going on the tube. Um, that in itself could give me a panic attack. And from an outsider's perspective, it seems like, oh, you know, you're very rigid. You know, you're not, you're not able to accommodate change. But from my perspective, it's, you know, I find that thing distressing. And to other people, going on the tube is just daily life. People don't have to worry about it. People don't think twice about going on the tube. But for me, it's something I really have to prepare for. And so if you spring it on me, it's very distressing. Um, it's the same with, 
you know, oftentimes when I was younger, I would have meltdowns and panic attacks and people wouldn't know what it was linked to. And people would say, oh, you know, she's just a drama queen. She's a hypochondriac. Um, but from my perspective, I couldn't explain it very well at the time, but it was stuff like I had a label that was digging into my back, um, a label from like my school cardigan. And every time I moved, I would just feel it grating on my back. And it was all I could think about and I couldn't focus on anybody or anything else. And then when one sensory, um, one sense is overwhelmed, all your other senses kind of become um, more in tune. So all of a sudden, like the lights are bothering you and the sounds are bothering you and it leads to a panic attack. And when you're in the panic attack, people are touching you, trying to tell you to calm down and shouting at you to calm down. And then it just spirals out of control. And so from someone who doesn't understand autism, it's like, oh my gosh, she's such a drama queen. You know, she's crying and screaming about a label on the cardigan. But for me, that's that's um, that's something that can completely ruin my day. And that's a very valid thing to be upset about. And so they're kind of these little miscommunications where people um, think, oh yeah, they're just really eccentric, they're really weird. But if you listen to people and if you listen to autistic people explaining why they react the way they do, um, for me, it just seems very reasonable. So what about um, often people say, talk about theory of mind and perhaps sometimes autistic people are unable to see things from different viewpoints or put themselves in someone else's shoes. What, what would you say to that? I read a really interesting study um, to do with this. You had a, two dolls, um, I can't remember their names, but you had these two dolls and the dolls had a ball. And so the um, one doll who's holding the ball puts the ball in a box. And then the second doll is told, you know, she's gonna leave the room. So the second doll is put under a blanket. The doll that's remaining then takes the ball out of the box and puts it and hides it, I think they hide it somewhere. Then the doll is taken out from under the blanket and the two dolls are there. And they ask, um, this was an experiment that was done with um, children on the autism spectrum. And then they and then ask the child on the autism spectrum, you know, the doll who's just come back from where she was, where does she think the ball is? And the child often says, Oh, or I think it was 75% of the time would say, oh, well, the doll thinks that the ball is hidden. But if you think from the doll's perspective, the last time she was in the room, I'm not explaining what's wrong. The last time she was in the room, the ball was in the box. The doll wasn't there when the ball was taken out of the box and hidden. So the doll wouldn't know that. But what the child does is they think, oh, okay, well, I have this information. And so if I have this information, the doll would have it as well. They don't see it from the doll's perspective of, well, she wasn't there when the ball was moved. And so when I first read that study, I thought, oh, well, I'm autistic, but I, I, I think that I understand that and I don't really do that. Um, I would know from the, like, I would know the doll's perspective. And I went on with my everyday life and I was telling my mom this story. And while I was telling her the story, I got frustrated with her. And I realized I was frustrated with her because I assumed that she knew the story I was telling her. And I realized that it's not as blatant as, you know, I think that people, well, I do. I mean, sometimes I sit and I assume that people know things that I know. And I, I think like, if there's an event in my life that is so memorable and that was so impactful for me, then my mom must have experienced it too. She must know about it, even though she may have been in a different country when it happened. Um, and it's it's a weird thing that I do, um, but a lot of autistic people do it, and it's it's more subtle. And if you were to if you were to sit down with me and be like, well, obviously I don't, I, I wouldn't know that um, because I wasn't there. That makes complete sense to me. I'm not deluding myself and thinking like, oh well, you just know everything that goes on in my life. But there's a little bit of an assumption there and it can just a subconscious assumption and it can lead to a lot of confusion. I remember um, I read about that study when I was 14 taking um, psychology, I remember 15, taking psychology for GCSE. And it made a lot of things that had happened in my life make sense um, because oftentimes I really struggled to tell stories and I would skip over parts and I wouldn't know why I did it, but I know now that 
I kind of thought that other people knew those parts. Um, and it's just a part of being autistic. Um, and, you know, every day I try to like push myself to not make that assumption, but the assumption is always there just subconsciously. I just wondered if there was any difficulties or, or, or any kind of um, coping strategies that you have in order to develop friendships and relationships. A few years ago, um, I had, you know, quite a few friendships. And at the time, I didn't really prioritize my mental health. Um, I just had ideas that were ingrained in me, like everyone has to have friends. And so if you asked me, you know, why do you have all these friends? I wouldn't have said to you, you know, because it makes me feel happy, because I enjoy spending time with them, because it makes me a better person. I would have said, because that's what you do. And I was very unhappy with having all these friends because I don't want to sound like I was like queen bee popular. I maybe had like five friends, but um, I was very unhappy because I spent a lot of time hiding who I was and making compromises and not really being able to voice things. You know, I had friends say, oh, you know, let's, let's do this really fun activity. Let's, you know, go to the park and run around. And I didn't want to be the, you know, party pooper who's there like, oh, well, you know, I really don't like grass because I don't like the feeling of grass and I don't like, you know, open fields. I don't like crowds. And, you know, this is going to give me a lot of anxiety and you can't just spring this on me. We need to have planned this at least a week advance. Like I knew that that would make me very unpopular. And so I'd just do it and I'd go along with whatever they wanted me to do. And, um, I'd, you know, I wouldn't tell them about difficulties in my life because I felt like when they were going on about, you know, oh, you know, it was so difficult. I got into a fight with my parents. My parents were really uncool. And then I'm there like, yeah, um, you know, this morning I, I couldn't get out of bed because I had like two panic attacks just thinking about the fact that I was going to have to go on the tube. It just felt like I couldn't convey that without it seeming, you know, really crazy. And so I tried to be basically neurotypical. And I spent a lot of time maintaining these friendships and reading articles about, um, I read a few books on how to maintain friendships and I was spending all my time and energy focusing on these friendships and it just destroyed my mental health because I was really, really unhappy. Um, I just felt like I couldn't be me. And I ended up having, you know, a bit of a, I, I got depressed and I had a lot of anxiety and what I learned from that whole experience is I just have to be myself. I just have to, you know, be my true, autistic, authentic self. And um, and I just had to find friends who are going to support that. You know, I have to find friends who aren't going to, like, make fun of me for obsessing over particular things or getting a lot of anxiety over things that most people, you know, won't even notice. And so for a long time, I haven't really had conventional friends. Um, I have people who I meet online um, through my neurodiversity work and I communicate with, um, but I haven't really had many friends. And a lot of people would think, oh, that would be awful. That must be so isolating. You must be really unhappy. I'm the happiest I've ever been because, um, you know, I just don't have all this social anxiety and I don't have to worry about all that stuff. I can just be me and I can focus on the things I enjoy. So obviously you are incredibly self-aware and you obviously have um, you know, done a lot of, you mentioned that you practice various techniques and you have gone on a self, your own journey of self-discovery, if you like. Well, well, you know, I guess there are people, even in their 30s, 40s or you know, even older, that don't ever get that diagnosis of autism and, and don't have that self-awareness. Do, 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 would you say that's quite common? Yeah, I mean, I feel really sorry for people who get diagnosed later in life. Um, I was diagnosed when I was 12, and it completely changed the way I viewed myself. Um, before I was diagnosed, if I would make a social blunder, I would just go into this, basically just self-hatred. I'd just sit there and I'd be like, I cannot believe you did that. That was so embarrassing. What is wrong with you? Why are you so weird? And I would spend all this time learning about body language. And I felt so alone. I felt like the only person who had to do this for everyone else, it was so natural and it wasn't something they had to worry about. And there I was, you know, staying up till 2 a.m. trying to, you know, figure out how I was going to say hi to someone, um, which, which actually happened. 
um, that is a true story. I mean, I, I've gone through some crazy stuff just trying to, um, you know, not be perceived as neurotypical. Um, and, and it felt very isolating and very lonely. And I genuinely felt like there was something seriously wrong with me. I didn't know how to communicate it to people because I didn't want to say, you know, the only reason I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with you and make eye contact with you is because I've spent, um, you know, hours of my life practicing this when other people it comes so naturally and then when I was diagnosed as autistic I didn't feel so alone and I didn't feel like my experience was unique to me I was reading about people who were going through the exact same thing and so it made me just more confident it didn't make me feel like I was just some just someone who was so different from everyone else I felt like you know there's a group of people who can relate to me and I can relate to them um, it also meant that I no longer had that whole journey of self-hatred when I would mess something up socially. Now it was, okay, well, let's just learn from it. Let's not spend hours critiquing it. Let's just move on. Um, and it really helped my mental health. And I don't know where I would be if I didn't have my diagnosis and if I wasn't able to go onto platforms and find advice. You know, I spend a lot of time on platforms that you know, give advice to autistic individuals. And if I didn't have those resources and I wasn't able to explain to people, you know, I need certain accommodations for my autism, um, I would be in a very different place. And so I feel really sorry for people who get diagnosed later in life. So what does being ne neurodivergent mean to you? So neurodiversity is a term that reflects the diversity of human brains and minds. So um, that includes neurological variations such as autism, dyslexia and dyspraxia um, that are natural variations in the human brain. Um, I believe that neurodiversity shouldn't be pathologized. A lot of people say, um, you know, invest money in finding a cure for autism or treatment for ADHD. And um, I think you know, I think that's wrong. I think that especially with autism, there are a lot of people, you know, Einstein, um, Steve Jobs, Stephen Hawking, they're, they're all these incredibly um, impressive people who've made really real waves in, um, in, in like the entrepreneurship, um, oh my gosh, one second. Um, in the I don't know what I was going to say. Yeah, okay. So there are a lot of people who are autistic who have made really valid contributions to society and have really changed the way that we live our lives. Um, and if autism were cured, we wouldn't have those same great minds. Um, the way my neurodiversity affects me is in pretty much everything I do. Um, you know, being autistic, dyslexic, dyspraxic and having ADHD you know, my neurodiversity with my dyslexia, it affects the way I write. Um, with my dyspraxia, it affects my movement because dyspraxia is a motor coordination disorder. With my ADHD, it affects um, the way I take in information. You know, I, I have to, with my ADHD, I have to keep things more interesting. I can't just sit at a screen and, and read for hours on end. I have to, you know, get up and move around and I need to take breaks. And there are times with my ADHD where I can't focus during the day. And so I'll stay up all night instead. Um, and so that's how my ADHD affects my life. And then with my autism, um, that affects the way I communicate with people. That affects my passions and my interests. Um, and it affects the way I perceive information. Um, I have a sensory processing disorder, and so I am more sensitive to bright lights and sounds. Um, when I'm at a restaurant, for instance, I'll be sitting with my mom and I'll start laughing and she'll say, you know, why are you laughing? And I'll be like, oh, well, the person three tables down told a really funny joke. She's like, what on earth? I can't, I can't hear that conversation. And I'm like, well, yeah, I have very sensitive hearing. Um, and so that, that's how my autism affects me. So just to summarise neurodiversity then. So is it true to say that neurodiversity is a viewpoint that brain differences are normal rather than deficits? You know, it's something to be, you know, as you say, to be treated. 
and obviously this is a concept that can help reduce stigma around learning and, and, and thinking differences. Um, I mean, it's important in many different ways in making sure that people get diagnosed and get the support they need. Um, but it's also important in showing people how impactful it can be and, um, you know, how many contributions neurodiverse people can make. I remember um, when I first started my Neurodiversity Celebration Week, I um, was sent an email by this boy in Australia and he told me this story about how he was diagnosed with ADHD and he just couldn't pay attention and he couldn't sit still in class and he was always moving around and his teachers would get really frustrated with him and they would tell him, you know, how are you ever going to be successful in life? How are you ever going to sit and work in an office if you can't pay attention for two minutes? You know, what are you going to do with yourself? And he really took it to heart and he started having some real um, self-esteem problems. He ended up getting depressed and having a lot of anxiety and just feeling like there was a lot of uncertainty over his life and what he would do. And he felt like his ADHD was the worst thing that ever happened to him. And then through my Neurodiversity Celebration Week, um, when I raised awareness for the positives and try to flip the negative from flip flip the narrative from focusing on the negatives of learning differences to focusing on the positives. Um, when they did Neurodiversity Celebration Week at his school, he was told all these positive things about being neurodiverse. And instead of being told, you know, you never accomplish anything in life, he was told, you know, look at Emma Watson, she has ADHD. Look at Justin Bieber, he has ADHD. Look at all these incredibly successful people who have ADHD, who have neurodiversity. And then through my Neurodiversity Celebration Week, um, he just flipped the narrative in his mind. And instead of thinking, oh, you know, my ADHD is the worst thing that ever happened to me and it's gonna ruin me. He thought, you know, my ADHD is what's gonna make me successful. And so that's the important part of like spreading awareness about neurodiversity because now when you're hearing more positive things and more negative things, it can really change people's life. And on that then, so what what are those specific strengths that maybe you have or, you know, these well-known people or that what are those strengths that you have that come from being neurodiverse? I mean, with me, every single day, I have to find ways to overcome maybe a hundred plus challenges. Um, I've had to, you know, I remember when I was younger, I would come up with different ways to make my uniform less scratchy and I would do all these different combinations and I would wash it in the, in the washing machine this many times, put it in the dryer this how many times, I would soak it and I was constantly problem solving. Um, I remember when um, I started having, you know, really bad problems with my sensory processing disorder. I was experimenting with all these different headphones and I was doing earplugs and I was coming up with all these different ideas. And I was constantly just trying to solve problems in my life and trying to identify problems that I was having. You know, when I was having anxiety, sometimes you don't know what's causing that anxiety. Um, you know, now when I, you know, start feeling really anxious, I can kind of figure out what it is I can say okay well that's the light um it was that sound but before in my life I would just all of a sudden feel like I, I was going to have a panic attack and I didn't know where it was coming from and so I had to spend a lot of time focusing on different things and learning more about myself and you know tracking what I was doing and um and seeing what was causing me anxiety what wasn't and coming up with all these different strategies and researching you know how I can fix problems that I was having in my social life. And over the course of my life, I've just regularly encountered all these problems and figured out how to solve them. And I read this book that said, if you spend 10,000 hours on something, you become an expert at it. I've spent 10,000 hours plus um, solving problems that come up for my neurodiversity. And so it's given me all this creativity um, all these problem solving skills and a lot of people say you know if you're dyslexic if you have ADHD that gives you creativity um, I think that you also just get creativity from the problem solving angle of it um, and you know with autism I am really passionate about math and it's a passion that I don't think I would have had if I'm a neurotypical 
What would you say to anyone listening to this podcast that perhaps they can identify with what with a lot of what you have said today and they they're thinking perhaps they they could be autistic themselves they're not quite sure they they're feeling a little bit isolated what what would you say to to someone listening like that i would say that if you feel like you might have a learning difference or um autism research it um see if you fit the criteria and if you do get diagnosed um getting diagnosed really changed my life it changed the way I reacted to things I was doing um, instead of, you know, going down this self-destructive path. I was very much like, okay, let's problem solve. Let's not just sit here and be upset about doing all these things. Um, like when I was dis- when I was found out I was dyslexic, um, instead of just feeling miserable every time I failed a spelling test and feeling miserable every time I got an essay handed back, just riddled with a red marker every place where I'd made a spelling mistake. I, it changed my reaction to that. Instead, I was like, okay, well, that's to be expected. I'm dyslexic. That comes with the territory. Let's just focus on the other comments the teacher made. And it really changed my mental health. And if you get diagnosed, um, hopefully it'll do the same with you and you can start understanding yourself more, um, reading material and becoming part of a community um, that are experiencing similar things to you, getting help, getting advice. Um, and just improving your life in general. Are there any particular websites that you could recommend for people to, to find support? If you're in primary school and you've just been diagnosed and you want advice for yourself, um, I'll just plug my website, QL Mentor. Um, if you're dyslexic and you just want advice for your dyslexia, you can go to the Dyslexia Foundation, you have the ADHD Foundation, um, there, there are lots of different websites you can go to. I would recommend trying to find one that works best for you and trying to find one that presents information in a way that you find um, works for you. You know, with my ADHD, I need a certain layout. And with my dyslexia, I mean, there are some websites that I can't even read off of because the, te- the font is too small and things are too close together. And so you just have to find you just have to research lots of websites and find one that works for you. Um, there are a lot of websites that people always told me, you know, this is a great one. And then I go on it and it just isn't working. Um, Special Needs Jungle is one that I would also recommend there. They're really good. But just check it out and see if see if you um, respond well to it. What would you say to someone who is close to or working with a neurodiverse individual? I would say that you have to listen to them. Um, lots of times in my life, I've had teachers who maybe want to help me, but they'll come up with adjustments that I don't need. I had one teacher who found out I was autistic and dyslexic and dyspraxic and ADHD, and after every lesson, she would check my notes. And I didn't know why she was doing it. I thought it was a bit odd, but she was like, you know, this is how I'm going to help you with your learning differences. And it wasn't something I required. And it was just a bit weird. And eventually I told her, you know, I don't, I don't really need this. I can, I can write my own, I can write good notes. You don't have to check them. Um, And she was like, oh, okay. And I never got to the bottom of it, but I think that she had a, a student in her class before who wanted that as a reasonable adjustment. And so she just started doing it for me. Um, but I would just say listen listen to people. Um, you know, a lot of the time, if I'm having something that is bothering me in class, I will go to my teacher and I will say, you know, can you move me in a place where I can see the board better? Or can you move me so that I'm not right underneath a flickering fluorescent light? And, um, and so teachers just listening to that and maybe creating an environment where your students can come to you and talk to you about problems they're having is really beneficial. What's the best advice you've ever received? I've received a lot of advice and one that really spoke to me and changed the way that I kind of interacted with people was um, I had, I was being bullied at school and I was at, I had a friend and I was at her, she was also autistic. She was a really good friend of mine. Um, she was someone that I really valued. 
and I was at her house and her mom was there and I was telling her about how I was getting bullied and her mom said to me you don't have to be anywhere you don't want to be and it seemed like very very basic advice but it really resonated with me and I remember um, you know the next time I was in an environment where I was uncomfortable instead of just sitting there and like just going through the motions and being like, okay, I don't want to leave. I don't want to cause a scene. I just got up and left. I just moved and I was like, you know, I don't feel comfortable here. I'm not going to stay here. Um, if you want me to stay here, then you have to make reasonable adjustments, but I'm not doing this. And then, you know, someone came up to me afterwards. I didn't, I didn't say that publicly. I just got up and left. And then someone came to me afterwards and was like, oh, okay, like, why, why'd you leave? And I was like, look, I'm autistic. And the environment just wasn't working. I was feeling really uncomfortable. I felt like I was going to have a panic attack. And I just felt like it would be better for me if I just, you know, left and um, found an environment that was more comfortable and was better um, that, that I would feel um, safer in. And they were like, oh, okay, well, maybe we can just make a few adjustments. And it was something that, that it just made my mental health a lot better, just feeling like I don't have to conform and be like everyone else and if I if I'm in a room where everyone else is really comfortable and having a fun time that I have to do the same thing um and so I ended up just standing up to a, a lot of people who were running environments and you know just expressing that I didn't feel comfortable there I remember one time I was this was a bit crazy I was at an event for neurodiverse people and I was there to accept an award um and there were a lot of autistic people there. And the event knew that there were going to be a lot of autistic people there. But they still decided that they were going to have flashing lights, um, dry ice. They had um, a microphone that was really loud. They had um, a stand-up comedian who performed, who did a lot of shouting into this loud mic. And I just got up and I'm like, okay, I'm not doing this. I'm just going to go outside. Um, and I left and when I was outside, I, you know, I said to someone, I really want to be here. I'm really, um, I really like, like your award show, but you know, this, I'm just feeling really uncomfortable. And they sat with me and they were like, I completely understand. I don't know. I don't know why that they decided to have an event that's just so autism unfriendly. And so this person, I sat outside and this person was running the event. And they made some adjustments so that I could still collect my award, but I wasn't going to have to sit in a room that was causing me so much anxiety. And um, the next time that they run that event, they're going to make it more autism friendly because of the comments I made to um, the person who was there running it. And so that's just an example of where I took this advice that this person, had, um, that my friend's mom had told me. And instead of just sitting there and bearing through it, I kind of got up, left, I'm like, I'm not doing this, um, I need to be in an environment that's going to help my mental health, and this is just giving me so much anxiety, and now they're changing it so that other people don't have to go through that. What would you say to your younger self? I don't know what I would say to my younger self, I would probably just say it's, it's all going to be fine. In the moment, things seem like a really big deal. I remember when I was getting bullied, when I had just started secondary school, I was 11, and it was all I thought about. It was, it consumed everything, the fact that I was getting bullied. I had anxiety that just stemmed through every single part of my life. You know, I couldn't sleep when I got up in the morning. I would have all this anxiety about how my day was going to go. And every time when I was in class, I would, I would try to see what my bullies were going to be. And I would structure my day to try to avoid them. And it just seemed like my life was never going to move on and that it was always just going to be so awful. And now, you know, it's been, what, seven years. And I, I barely ever think about that time in my life and I've just completely moved on. And, you know, when I look back at the way I react to certain things, um, I have this idea that, you know, this is just so awful and, um, you know, this is, this, I'm just never going to recover from this and this is just going to be my life for forever. And so just trying to convey the fact that, you know, it may seem really bad now, but in a few years, you're just barely going to remember it. So it'll be fine. Um, don't just obsess over things. That's something that I would like to tell my younger self because 
I think I just needed to relax a little bit when I was younger. I spent a lot of time just worrying about things that just didn't need to be worried about. I mean, the bullying, I, I had to worry about at the time, but I just spent a lot of time obsessing over things that were non-issues. So tried to convey that. But but now I can laugh about it, though. Now I can laugh about the times I just obsessed over how I was going to say hello to somebody or um, just obsessed over, like, a time when I asked someone a question that I thought was off. Um, yeah, now I can just laugh about it. But at the time, I just needed to relax a little bit. Sienna, thank you so much for talking to us today. You're obviously an incredibly inspirational young person and yeah, I'm sure you're making a big difference to a lot of people's lives and you know I've certainly kind of taken a lot from what you've said today and pretty much that you can't assume that people experience the world in the way that you do and it's important to be our true self and that we need to celebrate our differences so um, really really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much I really appreciated talking to you. Thank you. So the next Neurodiversity Celebration Week is in March next year. That That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, it'll be March 15th to March 21st in 2021. And where? what's the website for people wanting to find out more about that? It's www.neurodiversity-celebration-week.com Sienna, thanks again.